Hello, everyone, and welcome to Future Imagined, a Foresight podcast. I'm Joe Lepore. I lead Foresight for North America inside the global Mars Wrigley Foresight team. In today's episode, we're going to take you higher, all the way up to the macro level. We'll be discussing big macro environmental forces, arguably the most complex and the meatiest topics when it comes to long-term strategic thinking, and how specifically they can and should influence your strategic planning. So for this big picture, deeper level conversation, I feel incredibly lucky and honored to have two of the very best strategic thinkers that I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. And of course, to be able to complement that, I've brought in our very best macro brain in the business, Jess Southard. Hey, thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. So my name is Jess Southard, and I lead our corporate foresight program as part of Mars Incorporated. Amazing, Jess. And this episode is a really exciting and meaty one. I can't wait to get into this conversation. We're going to be talking about a range of things, including some big macro forces that are playing out in the world at large today, and also about futurism and foresight as a practice that should be embedded inside of a business. And these two guests that we have on the panel, they've been doing it for decades. My question to you is, you know, do you think that futurism is teachable in everyone? I believe everyone has a capacity to learn just about anything because I do fundamentally believe that humans are just an incredibly unique species. So I think, do they have the ability? Yes. I think where there starts to be a difference in some sort of delineation is the appetite for it, the patience the dedication, the discipline, the curiosity. And I think that's where you start to see some sort of division and some people are better suited for future thinking versus others less so. Yeah. And what you touched on there, I think is really important because when we're talking about big macro topics, sometimes they're the appetite, I think, as you said, is the thing that is the most needed, an appetite to be looking across different macro influences in the world inside of your country and outside of it but also looking at differing opinions, different perspectives, different evidence that's coming our way and really turning that into a so what for your business. So really thinking through what you're saying and then distilling it down into the big aha that will influence your brand strategy. Yeah, I think it's that translation bridge, Joe, that is probably the hardest skill set and yet the most critical. And to me, again, that's where I think of foresight. It has to be collaborative and it has to be a full business responsibility. It just can't be something that is left to three to four people to figure out. Having people dedicated to foresight is really important in terms of providing the level of depth of thinking, the context, the right provocation, the right data, but also the right creativity. But ultimately solving for it and the planning has to be a business commitment. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Very honored that inside of Mars, we have a dedicated foresight function. We also have it dedicated inside of that corporate space, which Jess, you yourself lead. Um, But we want everybody, not only in our business, but inside of the CPG industry, inside of other industries, to be practicing futurism in some small part. So in your eyes, is futurism just thinking differently? Yes, it's thinking differently. It's thinking nonlinear in many ways. So I think we're, we're really good at saying if this happens, then that 
to me, really great futurists think not just first order effects, but second and third order effects. So thinking about sort of that snowball or sort of the domino effect. I also think a part of it is empathy. And to me, in order to be really good at future thinking, you've got to have a heart for understanding human beings and why we fundamentally do what we do, which I think requires a little bit of fascination with the outside world, a little bit of fascination with human beings and not being so self-centered that you only care about things that immediately impact you from a day-to-day standpoint. Speaking of fascination, I'm really looking forward to hearing what Jake and Faith have to say. Stepping outside of your business and taking the time to listen to different perspectives is going to be a really great exercise, particularly when we're talking about looking at those big macro topics and distilling that down into the micro trends that we talk about every day inside of the business space. And like you said, Jess, practicing nonlinear thinking, creating connections between the things that we see, building empathy and really understanding human beings and their motivations. I agree, Joe. Let's go listen in. I'm Faith Popcorn. I have been running a company called Faith Popcorn's Brain Reserve now for over four decades. We provide a vision of the future to the Fortune 200 mainly and help them, by virtue of knowing what's coming, make better decisions about what to bring out, what not to bring out, what the language of the enterprise should be, what the sensitivities are, how they're changing, how they will change, and on and on. I'm Jake Satiriatis. I'm the Director of Operations and Engagement at National Intelligence University for our Intel Research Education and Solutions Laboratory. I'm also a member of the research faculty there. Prior to that, I founded the U.S. Air Force's Strategic Foresight and Futures team, where we were introducing foresight methodologies and futures-based thinking to tackle our national security issues and problems. Let's kick off by starting to think about those big macro forces. And today we're going to talk about them and how they're influencing the change in our political, technological and cultural landscape. And one thing I want to recognize right off the bat is that, yes, this conversation is brought to you by a candy company, Mars Wrigley, but we, like every other astute organization, need to be looking further ahead proactively. We need to be considering macro changes more deeply and anticipating disruption in order to strengthen and evolve our business strategies. What I really want to do today is to help our listeners, to help you see how thinking macro can be a really powerful tool in business strategy. But more importantly, we're going to connect this for you with human motivations, those things that people, our consumers, aspire to, are inspired by, and are motivated to act on. If you've listened to any of my podcast episodes before, you know that I love a good quote. So I'll start with one from Douglas Adams. Trying to predict the future is a mugs game, but increasingly it's a game we all have to play because the world is changing so fast and we need to have some sort of an idea of what the future is actually going to be like because we're going to have to live there probably next week. Speaking of those changes that appear to be taking place slowly but are actually happening rather quickly, let's start with the cultural macro force and those things that are uniting our values while also shaping our individualism. Faith. There's been a lot of flux in our world, particularly in the last few decades, particularly thinking about what shapes us as individuals at that cultural level, those shared norms that we have, models for operating in our value systems. Like you said, you've been tracking changes in culture for over four decades through your company, Brain Reserve. What I love is that, in fact, in the 80s, you coined cocooning, and we've seen almost like a resurgence of cocooning 
in 2020. What's the difference for you in cocooning back then and what's happening now? I just want to say I'm terrified that on my tombstone it's going to say, here she lies cocooned. (laughs) But back in the, let's say, 1982, we were talking about cocooning as a warm and cozy environment. He said Martha Stewart is the queen of cocooning. Everything was lovely and chintz, you know, chintz patterns and warm. And then as the world got more and more dangerous and scary and technology started to, you know, beat up, go up and get fuller, cocooning became a way of life and saying that we wanted to live inside. And as the forces like, you know, shortness of water, divisiveness in the U.S., rise of China, tensions escalating, disruptors all over the place. I think people were looking more and more for a hideout that was safer than under their beds, which is, you know, where it all started. So I would say there's a mega difference. We just repositioned a large uh, telecommunications company based on cocooning. Actually, pre-lockdown, pre-COVID, we gave them a vision that they thought was apocalyptic. And, you know, as soon as COVID hit, which I don't know, timing is everything, but three months later, they go, oh my God, you know, where's that presentation where you said it was apocalyptic and it was so real? Everything will be delivered inside and inside will get much more developed. So we can talk about that as we go on, but we're seeing cities being built. We're going to see domes coming over those cities. We see Elon Musk doing planet jumping thinking about how to get out of here in case it doesn't work out. Uber cocooning. You know, when you were talking about sort of where it all started, there was a lot of flux and uncertainty in the world back then. Do you feel like change is starting to happen more rapidly in the external environment and those are the influencing factors? Or do you feel like it's actually almost like history repeating itself in our emotions and our feelings? The thing about history repeating itself is It never repeats itself in a way that you can actually depend on it. The way we predict is looking forward 10, 15 years and looking from the present forward. That's how we predict. It was always going fast, but now we're able to see it somehow going fast. It's going at rapid speed. It's like catch up or drop off. And later, if you want to, we could talk about improving Humanity, you know, uploading our intelligence, avatars, the roles they play, how being human isn't enough. And then we could talk about the resistance to that or, you know, however. I know Jake has looked a lot at this and uh, he's building scenarios, which I think is so brilliant. I'll let you tell your story, but I really liked it when you said being a futurist is not really about predicting the future, but I was just so impressed with it. Let's hear it in your words, Jake. Yeah, no, thanks again. And I appreciate the kind words, Faith very much a fan of the incredible work and contributions that you've made to what's really now becoming much, much more mainstream. Mm -hmm. For many, many years, it seemed like the whole idea of futurism and foresight was sort of, you know, out on the fringe. But as you mentioned, the pandemic over this last year and a half has really given us this mental reset, and I think conditioned us all towards accepting how much we really need to think differently and why futures-based thinking is so important. What's one of the main approaches that I've taken and that I continue to adopt both with our students, with our, with our research approach, and uh, especially when we look at national security, where you really have to trade in the currency of uncertainty. 
But that applies equally to the business world as well. So we can't run away from uncertainty. We have to really embrace it. But we have to have a good way to do that. And it isn't just sort of taking this leap of faith. It's saying that we're not going to be able to predict with mathematical certainty what the future is going to hold. And so we shouldn't necessarily try to predict it. We're not trying to be necessarily right 100% of the time. But what we're trying to do is consider these alternative future scenarios. The future doesn't really exist. As a singular entity, there are always multiple possible futures, which are always in flux. And so how do we help our respective organizations understand the implications of these different futures? How do they see themselves? How do they build even aspirational futures to where they want to be? Really, it's, I think, challenging the conventional wisdom and the groupthink that so many organizations, whether they're business organizations or government organizations, fall into, where everybody seems to sort of coalesce around one particular vision of the future. And when that happens, it should be a huge red flag that something has gone quite awry. And that's really the value proposition to my mind for having people who understand strategic foresight and futures. And I think it's as much a cultural piece as it is a futurist piece. Yeah, well, one of the things that I'm really fascinated with is I think what you both touched on, which is that we're seeing these extremes in the environmental context of our world. So polarization, division, instability. Jake, you said, you know, the uncertainty that we're dealing with. I think one of the things that futurism is almost pegged at is the crystal ball and that you have a definitive view of how to navigate some of these things and what some of these things might lead to definitively. But we know foresight is about preparation, not prediction. How do you balance that, Jake, with the models that are built around building sort of anticipatory reactions in the world or anticipatory human behaviors? Well, I mean, Joe, I would say, first of all, you've got to have a way of understanding the forces that are at play and sort of characterizing the strategic environment, understanding the sources of disruption that are in that environment, and then also understanding from a historical perspective, we talked a bit earlier about history repeating itself or not repeating itself. History gives us insights. Uh, I don't know necessarily that we learn lessons from history. We tend not to do that. We tend to repeat the same mistakes. That's, to me, what's more consistent than anything else. And so this idea in particular from a security perspective of understanding the sources of disruption in today's environment and then looking from a historical perspective, what are the current sources of disruption in our environment? Are they similar, different than what we've seen in situations in the past that we may be wrestling with today? If they are, where are the touch points? If not, where do they diverge? And what are the factors that we can focus on now? that will give us the ability to build out some alternative future scenarios and then really affect our bottom line of our strategic planning. Yeah, definitely. We talk a lot in Mars Wrigley about building the foresight muscles and not just inside of your foresight team or your strategy team, but inside of every associate in the business is that curiosity around the things that are happening and outside of your industry category and also just being able to look at alternative futures and look at trends and counter trends. And I think one of the things that's really interesting for me in that is the changing landscape for the consumer. And Faith, I'd love to get your take on this because I know you speak a little bit about the vigilante consumer. So are people becoming more unpredictable? So vigilante consumer, which has been in our trend bank for many, many years, like 25, said that people were going to get more and more aggravated and upset. They were going to start to revolt. Once you understand a vision of the future or several scenarios in the future, you can really pick up what's happening presently and start to create a timeline 
oh, it's going much faster. Gee, you know, I thought it was being slower. So we have a couple of trends, not only vigilante consumer, but future tense, people really being scared of what's ahead. Atmosphere is that ultimate denial of what's happening in the atmosphere. And atmosphere is spelled F-E-A-R in our trend bank, saying fear of what's out there. And we're seeing this angry population and not so peace-loving and people giving it a real voice, a megaphone. All the platforms are allowing anybody really to speak. I'd say it's louder, but I think it was the discontent, the unhappiness, the pressure was there. That leads me into a question that I have around sort of what you touched on there is the control that's happening now by social media and social platforms and very much sort of connected into what I've called sort of computational propaganda. And I really love the Huxley quote, propaganda's purpose is to make one set of people forget that certain other sets of people are human. And that's certainly fueling that personal discontent as well as the tensions that currently exist in different perspectives. Jake, I'd love to hear your take on that because I, I'm, I'm sure that you guys have looked at this quite a lot when you're looking at, you know, how is this going to potentially influence national security or governance and policy? Is that sort of breaking a part of cultural value sets that's happening? Yeah, I think that it is. Disinformation itself is a major source of disruption. It isn't necessarily new. I mean, it's quite an old concept, but the speed with which it's occurring today and the fact that we have platforms, as you mentioned, like social media, and that we actually have global campaigns that are targeting every facet of our society, I think is really, really dangerous. And, you know, before it's been called over the past year that we're not only in a pandemic, we're in an infodemic where we've got to try to educate our society, not only just through education, but we also have to have sound policy to be able to combat this kind of phenomenon. Because we're seeing right now just disinformation about vaccines, disinformation about various geopolitical issues that we see out there and sort of building these digital communities of disinformation that we're actually seeing have palpable effects in our society. And one of the things that we had looked at over the last year was really understanding just how much this can impact our ability not only to fight the pandemic, but even longer term, you know, what this means when we talk about things like moving to the metaverse, when we talk about, you know, not having digital twins, but maybe we're all having digital quintuplets in the future and, you know, various versions of where our likeness goes. And then just, you know, imagine the potential for that to be a disruptive force. And so we've got to start preparing for those kinds of things now. We have to start putting policies in place now, even though some of the technologies and some of those programs don't exist yet. I think that proactive approach, that anticipatory thinking is really what's needed. You're absolutely right. The metaverse being a parallel universe will create a new legal system because, as you said, you know, your avatar goes off and goes off script. Is that your responsibility? Your avatar hits somebody or disconnects somebody or who knows what that avatar can do or it joins up with a force that you don't believe in. I mean, there's a woman named Krista Kim in the metaverse. She just sold a house called Mars House for $512,000 real American dollars. And yet Fortune 200 is hesitant to jump on that metaverse, do business in the metaverse, appear in the metaverse and missing a big opportunity because people are escaping into that metaverse and living there. It truly is a parallel and may become a superior place for humans and avatars and whatever else we'll have there to live. 
Yeah. And, you know, for businesses, I recently wrote a piece about the metaverse for our business. And I feel like most people just kind of looked at me and went, yeah, that's like 15 years away. Yeah. I don't think so, right? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, a new economic system for a business is going to exist in the metaverse. So it's already happening today if we even think about the starting points of Roblox, you know, and Fortnite and these platforms that are essentially the starting point for what will be the metaverse. I love that idea of sort of looking out further into the future and also thinking about, you know, how does that impact individuals at the day-to-day level and some of the things you both touched on, you know, fear and anger that people are feeling wanting to escape from the current world that they live in, which is so tumultuous, kind of leads me into how we do think some of those things will or will not be controlled through things like surveillance and government intervention. We already know that our phones are a method of surveillance, whether you've got social credit score from the government or whether you have a phone tracking you day to day. And as it was famously said, surveillance is the business model of the internet. So as the internet expands into the metaverse, surveillance is likely to expand. Jake, I'd love to get your take on that. It's interesting having this discussion now, especially, you know, in September of 2021, 20 years after the 9-11 attacks. And I I just find some of the parallels fascinating because we were having a debate 20 years ago about public safety versus individual liberties, protecting information and then empowering government agencies to be able to protect the citizenry and protect our infrastructure, etc. And now you know, the experience of the pandemic has shifted that debate slightly. Uh, We still have those two sides, but those two sides are different in the sense that now it's public safety from a health perspective, right? Individual liberties uh, from a different perspective, but now you just, you kind of substitute that security umbrella for sort of this, you know, health ecosystem. And I think one of the things we're going to have to look at moving into the future is that when we talk about harnessing the power of quantum processors, uh, and what that's going to do for us in the future. Or we're actually, and if you look at the sort of the synthetic biology ecosystem and industry that's developing right now, which I think is extra, it's fascinating and frightening at the same time, where we're actually going to be able to tweak, if you will, at population scale, the human ecosystem, and then think about things like um, harnessing biodata stockpiles as maybe the currency of global competition in terms of security. I think those kinds of issues are going to have to have government intervention and steps taken to protect that kind of data, uh, because as we've seen, they may present an opportunity for countries to you know, take aggressive actions based on when they know or they think they're going to have a window of opportunity if they have a five or six week delay for a lockdown for a similar type of pathogen like COVID-19. And oh, by the way, here we are you know, a year and a half into this, and we're still not out of the woods yet. So I, I, I think that it's sort of an enduring debate that never went away. It's just morphed now, uh, and it's going to continue to do so, I think, well into the future. Yeah, and it's really fascinating in the context of COVID. One of the things that really interests me is that uh, we've really lent on our governments to step in and help us to navigate the pandemic. At the same time, I think it's given a lot more freedom to government than probably what we had realized that they already had. So emergency measures to lock us down. And I'm speaking, you know, after talking with my family in Australia who have been in lockdown for the eighth time now um, and still, still waiting to come out of that, never would we have thought that a government would disallow you to leave your country 
if you wanted to, or to come back into the country that you're a citizen. So are, is that a part of what you're alluding to there and what we're seeing is that we are um, almost redefining the control and the power that government has? Yes, I think government's going to have a lot more power. And I, of course, think that's, you know, both dangerous and relieving. Uh, and then you say to yourself, how come government didn't figure this out and catch it early? And I feel like when we talk to like Fortune 200, like you had that experience with the metaverse, they just look at you. So if you said there's a little virus banging around in Wuhan, I mean, people did say that. And then the slowness. I say if there has to be one thing that has to be fixed with business now is the slowness of response. It's mind boggling. So what's happening is things are out of control. Consumers, people, humans, to get a little control, they're, you know, popping into that metaverse, popping into places where they feel they have control. They're playing games where they think they can win. Um, they're meeting people through the gaming systems. Everything's a game. Uh, they're finding their health through the internet. And as te technology gets more and more sophisticated, we need to see each other in human form less and less, which is in a way great because we could catch something. But, you know, so we have our avatars interacting with other avatars. One of our avatars gets married to somebody else. So the Fortune 200 is so ill-prepared for humans speeding away from them and thinking that they can still, you know, advertise something. So I see a tremendous shut down, like, you know, a stressed child, like shuts down, tremendous shutdown to visions of the future. And from what I hear about Jake, you've, you've felt the same way, right? When you tell people things. Yeah, absolutely. The parallels are, are very, uh, are very similar. One of the, the struggles is really educating a lot of the senior leaders to, to try to think differently, to try to help them think through some of these processes and decision cycles. Because to be very honest, I mean, we've all come up through this very linear way of thinking of just point A to point B. And we're just seeing that the world we live in is so complex uh, and changing in, at such a rapid pace that we really have to build what I call this cognitive operating system to be able to navigate it and help to frame that. And the pillars that I promote when I talk about this cognitive operating system is understanding the interconnectivity of events, even events that are happening completely outside of your own business space uh, or focus area. Because what we're seeing is that these seemingly unrelated events may have actual implications that will come back and affect your bottom line if you, if you don't pay attention to these. These weak signals that we talk about in the lexicon of, of futurism, right? These weak signals that then become emerging trends. And then you also have to have, um, you know, but not just the interconnectivity of events. You have to embrace complexity, uh, in your thinking. When we say complexity, it's important to define it. People get confused sometimes. Not that something is complicated, but when you say something is a complex system, right, it has multi-sources multi of causality, right? It has these codependent variables. So you have to embrace this idea that really we're operating in a series of complex adaptive systems. And then this, this third pillar is, you know, we've got to also educate. We've got to also create this, this bench of futurist thinkers that are going to carry that message forward and stop making what we're talking about now the exception towards the norm, right? We all want to go for the smartphone app. That's the instant solution and gratification that we all want. Industry wants it. Government wants it. The hard work is to build the operating system that's on 24 hours, seven days a week that you don't even notice it's operating because it's just part and parcel of your day-to-day -day culture. 
maybe you could eventually upload futurism into people's brains because I've found that it was very difficult to teach futurism uh, because people, they reject it. It's like organ rejection. That can't happen. So I'm sure you've seen the same thing. And as long as you close your eyes and hide under your bed, it's going to come and attack you. You know, I, I remember meeting Frank Mars uh, a long time. You know, we worked with Mars, and he was so fabulous. But he was like the mad professor, you know, things bubbling <laughs> in tubes. And and he was trying to say, you know, chocolate can open your veins. It can make, you know, your blood flow better. He was su such a futurist, mm -hmm. so brilliant. The reason we created our trend bank, we have a trend bank, 17 of these directions. Think of them as Oculus with 17 holes into the future. And the you know, people go, well, which one? No, all, all of them. It's about, you know, down aging and, and, and cocooning and then pleasure revenge. And then there's this and there's that. It's, it's running 10 miles and then coming and eating a quart of Haagen-Dazs when you get back. It's people are complicated, complex. So you have to keep them all in mind. And then we use our talent bank, which I know you have two, Jake, futurists all over the world that work with us, not only to update, they're the makers of the future, right? They're making stuff, lay over the trends so that we, we lay the trends over a situation and then we lay the futurists over the trends. And um, with that, we get a much clearer picture of what's going to happen. And we, we frame everything in near, mid, far, because we've learned that it's very hard for people to see far, even though that's where we start. Go back to near and mid at best. And that's how we tell our clients that people are going to not trust the water source. They're going to want bottled water. People are going to not trust meat. You know, it's not vegetarianism and being a hippie. It's that it's not good for you. It's going to be everything that's going to be lab grown. The planet's so polluted right now, we can hardly grow anything. That kind of thing helps industry get ready. One thing that we often hear inside of a business, and I imagine it's similar to any client or any you know student, they try to distill it down to what is relevant for me in my role that I can put into my brand plan or my action plan and almost want you to connect the dots for them. So I do agree. I think it's a really challenging skill to build. I think that it requires creative thinking and imagination and tapping into that thing that particularly in the corporate setting, we don't tap into enough thinking past our existing reality or whatever our perception of reality is and thinking about new ways of doing things, which again, is not something that you're naturally sort of told to do day in, day out inside of a corporate setting, but it can be so powerful. And that's where true innovation is happening right now inside of the world. And I really love your point before, Jake, around interconnectedness, so connection of trends, connecting patterns, connecting these macro forces and what it means for human beings or what it means for our future. But also, I think it is our role, at least inside of Corporate Foresight, to help bring it down one level and say, for example, how are political, economic, environmental forces going to influence your business in the next decade? With that in mind, I'd love to have a chat about something, Jake, that I know you've done a lot of work on is one of the biggest influencing factors coming into this decade. And we're hearing so much about, you know, the breakup between, you know, particularly China and the US and geopolitical tensions. You know, what are some of the big things that we have to be looking at when it comes to this and anticipating for the future? 
Yeah, let me just go back to one point, which was that you know, in many cases, people are always looking to build something new and slap the innovation title on it. Whereas many times, if you take a step back, you'll see that innovation, at least to my mind, the word gets so overused now that it almost becomes meaningless. Innovation can really be seeing or connecting the dots, making this interconnectivity part of the way you think to be able to take disparate pieces that are actually right in front of you that you weren't able to connect and make sense of them. So this idea of this new way of sense making, I think also is as important to innovation as is just building something new, which doesn't necessarily change the way that we think or that we do business. One of the things I think that we really need to take an important look at moving forward in the, in the geopolitical arena is this idea that we're not beyond the power of ideas in politics. And these ideas in geopolitics in particular, you know, at the end of the Cold War, we made this big mistake and we said ideology is clinically dead. Communism is defeated. We're at the end of history. Fukuyama's famous article now. And we didn't realize forces at play like Islamic extremism, forces at play with like alternative economic models that are now pushing progressive uh, political objectives. We're missing things like new ideologies like in China, neo-Confucianism, in Russia, neo-Eurasianism, this idea that you have these ideologies that are truly living, breathing networks, creating foreign policy actions that we're struggling to not only understand, but also to anticipate, where a lot of this information is lying out in plain sight, but we're not synthesizing that information, connecting the dots in a meaningful way to actually be proactive versus reacting to things. And so building the aspirational futures in a geopolitical sense is the same way you would do it in the business world. The problem is, again, translating this way of thinking and building scenarios into actual concrete policy. Yeah, I love that. And I think there's a lot in there that we don't often bring into the business context setting. I mean, we definitely even for a global multinational company, we talk about the differences inside of, you know, governance and culture and traditions across the world. But we don't throw up catastrophic scenarios. And Faith, I'd love to get your take out of all of that that we're hearing around particularly geopolitical tensions and new models that are coming through. You know, how much is this building unknown catastrophes that we should be anticipating? We should be anticipating unknown, unknown catastrophes, unknown pleasure. I love what you're saying, these little weak signals. I mean, we picked up almost everything from weak signals. Weak signals that people wouldn't be eating meat or chicken. Weak signals that people were dividing in ways that they're never going to come back together again. Weak signals that women are rolling up into like this revolution. And diversity, a white word for what's going on, I think. And people are looking to, and maybe they are vibrating with the culture, something a little more unexpected, something more musical, something more funny or different. That's what they're looking for. Brightness. Brightness. I love that word, Faith. You know, one of the things that we're talking about a lot is this sort of decade of discovery that we're coming into. It's just discovering different things, exploration, the boom of creativity, creative thinking, artistry, going back to what's artistic and balancing that with the science and the quantification mm -hmm. and the technology in our world. I think one of the other things that you touched on, which was really interesting, both of you, was the weak signals. 
particularly when we're talking about some of the things that we're starting to see come through on the fringes and those weak signals are those things that feel very far out and definitely feel like they're disconnected from our strategic planning of today or even of the next three years. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're those things that I'd love to talk about now. And it's in that sort of technological macro force. And I feel like we've touched on technology throughout the entire conversation for the reason that it is interconnected into so many different things, not just because all the forces are interconnected, but also because this one is such a guiding light for a lot of the evolution that we see. But here, some of the things that we're seeing that I think are really fascinating is sort of the alternative versions of those things that are air quote real that we're seeing technology provide and specifically what I'm sort of calling faux products or services. The metaverse is one version of that's mm-hmm. virtual experiences instead of real physical ones. One question that I had for you, Jake, on that is, you know, you've done a lot of work in disruptive technology. How should we start to think about that in the context of further out future thinking? Is this an alternative version of what's real or is this the new real? Well, I think it, it centers around our lived relationship to the real and what that means. But I think what we really need to consider when we talk about disruptive technology is that it's not just the technological piece alone. We've actually fallen into that trap many, many times where we tend to just even equate the concept of the future with technology without thinking about all of the second and third order effects that go along with that. And that's actually quite dangerous because we tend to think, well, we'll just solve X, Y, Z problems because this technology will take care of it. We won't have to worry about this. We, we, we don't anticipate that actually by eliminating these jobs or by eliminating this capacity or by eliminating this bureau or this company or whatever, you've got consequences, you have issues, implications. And particularly what we've seen in the security realm and in defense, you know, we were supposed to have a peace dividend, right? At the end of the Cold War, we were supposed to be able to reduce defense spending, right? And we ended up actually fighting more conflicts after the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? From 1990 until now. The cautionary tale here is that this shouldn't make us averse to embracing technology. I mean, quite the contrary. We need to be doing all we can to build, frankly, this next generation of digital citizens so that we're able to have a populace that understands that there is this disinformation war that's going on, not just against the government, it's against all facets of our society and how much that can impact us. We need to prepare a society for that. Education is one piece, but sound policy is what will make it happen. There's so many countries around the world that actually have legislation that mandates that if a particular bill or policy is up for a vote, it needs to actually have been future-proofed. It actually has to have gone through some sort of a foresight process. We're not there yet in the United States, but I think there's certainly appetite for getting there. All of those things together, I think, are going to help us navigate that uncertainty, in particular with disruptive technology as we move ahead. Mm, And that's really being embraced by people as well. I mean, even if we see some of what's happening in Europe or the UK specifically and the future-proofing policies that they're starting to put into place that consumers are like, yes, please, we're the generation inheriting this. And a part of me just kind of read that and went, why aren't we doing that already? Why aren't we future-proofing our strategies? And like you said, Jake, working with futurists. One of the things that I am really fascinated with is how all of these changes are shared value systems in the context of memories and traditions. And this one's really relevant for us as a category because we're all about those traditional associations and those things that you grew up with. So as they become more digital and virtual and faux, Faith, how does that evolve sort of our perception with reality and and traditions and heritage? I think we have to figure out what is future heritage? What are people going to be clinging to? What's going to mean a lot to them? I see some very conservative people at companies going his, her, you know, whatever, trying to be cool. 
but I don't think they really understand if gender is roving, reality is morphed. You have to be quite a futurist genius, really, to be leading anything, giving good advice, navigating the future. You have to be open to what other people are thinking, like, what are these futures thinking? What are they saying? I'm working right now on a, a musical album with a South African rock star named Kern Zoid about the future, because it's very hard, as you see, Joe, tell somebody the future, but I'm thinking maybe if you sing it to them. So we did a song called Slow Boat to Mars, Algorithm and Blues, things that maybe give the message in another venue, another way of listening anything that will open the aperture. There you go. That's quite literally disruptive technology right there. Um, mm -hmm. So I completely agree with you. And I want to point and say that why I enjoy working in this futurist space is because I think you're able to take that idea of the future of education or the future of what our society is going to be like and build those ideas and values of what we want the society to look like, get that sort of macro view, build those aspirational futures. But at the same time in the present, trying to find those issues upon which people can agree and bring, I think, maybe disparate elements of society together, and which is such a challenge to do today, unfortunately. I really lament the fact that uh, even just basic information today becomes things that we, we consider to be just sort of taken for granted are now huge points of contention and debate to the point where people don't want to speak with each other anymore. And what I actually really hope for the future is that we rebuild, reestablish a culture of public intellectuals in this country that are so important. And we've gotten rid of that. And we've now gone into this world of amplifying echo chambers. John F. Kennedy had a great quote in the 1960s, which is uh, that we need to start becoming, I think, more comfortable with this discomfort of actually thinking. Yeah. And I think, Jake, that quote was a, too often we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. That's right. The comfort of opinion. And that speaks to this time that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, we're very, very comfortable with uninformed or frankly, you know, unchecked opinion. But we need to start becoming more comfortable with this discomfort of actually thinking. You know, we can't just rest upon what we've been conditioned to think. And that's why I think it's so important for us to be able to condition not only this next generation, but frankly, previous generations with this way of thinking, because in many cases, they're the decision makers. But we're not so comfortable with actually putting in that hard work of doing some thinking and making sense of what's being said. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of leaning on people who have not only a diverse set of opinions, then balancing that with experience and the people like the two of you who have been around for a little while doing this gig. And you just impressed me so much. The level of depth of macro thinking that I think would benefit everyone from a government official right through to a Snickers brand manager. The appetite to consider change. The appetite to understand that when you're living in a tough place, you must look for the alternative to everything because that's where the answers will probably lie. What's the alternative? If people are eating chocolate, what's the alternative? What should be in it? I think people would love to stop making decisions, but companies are missing the opportunity to engage consumers' lifetime and their children. So many times we say, like, who's buying this stuff? Oh, you know, everybody. <laughs> Nobody thinks they're in everybody, and everybody's different. I don't think we use the power of connection for our brands, and I don't think we're recognizing that human and hybrid are crossing. We are not really 
human anymore in the way that our grandparents might have said we're human. And our ability to put up with frustration is getting less and less. It was hard to cut that conversation off. I could listen to Jake and Faith for hours. I hope you felt the same way. You know, while their perspectives of futurism are slightly different and their methodologies differ somewhat, they were so aligned on one critical thing that we need to wake up and pay attention to what's happening around us. Those big macro topics of the future can seem too grand to grasp or irrelevant for our categories or perhaps too far out in the distant future to impact our immediate business plans. But there is so much power, as Jake says, in embracing complexity, using your power of critical thinking to look at those macro forces, not just to anticipate the unknown catastrophes, that disruption that is no doubt around the corner, but to stretch our minds, not just to form an opinion, but to think. As Faith asks, if you knew everything about tomorrow, what would you do differently today? Tomorrow starts today, as does your future. This is Joe. Until next time, keep thinking and stay curious. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Wrigley, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjarez, with editing and sound design by Matha de Leon. <laughs>